Welcome to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. This is a show for fintech builders and leaders looking for a deep dive into the intersection of payments and data security. You're about to hear a conversation around payments, fintech, data security, and more. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. I'm Amanda Carocchio, the Director of Partnerships at VGS, and I am so excited to speak with our special guest today, Rory O'Reilly. Rory is the CEO and co-founder of Not API. Rory, welcome to the pod. Amanda, thanks so much for having me. So excited to be here with you and VGS. Awesome. Okay, so to kick us off, this is not your first time being a founder. Can you walk us through a little bit of your entrepreneurial journey and then how you wound up founding Not? Sure. So if we start from the very beginning, my parents, I would say, were hustlers when I was growing up. Essentially, my dad and mom bought stuff wholesale, and I mean, essentially random things, shoes, cutlery, pots and pans, and they would resell it in the streets of New York. So when I was really little, I saw that, and it kind of gave us the spark that you could be your own boss. And as my brother and I grew up, we would sell things from candy to lemonade stands, and then we made our first tech business when we were 11 and 12. We made a website where you could do small tasks and win money. We both got super lucky, both went to Harvard, and then we dropped out to make this website called GIFs.com, which was a GIF website before GIFs were super cool. This was maybe 2014 or so. And then we scaled that to millions of users, millions of GIFs made, delivered billions of times. And then in late 2017, early 2018, we made a crypto project called Gems and sold around $80 million worth of crypto. So it was a ridiculous moment. Fast forward three or four years, we launched a debit card called Millions and became the largest fintech on TikTok with 1.1 million followers, 200K on on, uh, Twitter, and then 300K on YouTube. And we ended up realizing a lot of the problems in the fintech space and a lot of them around onboarding and actually getting people to switch their old card information from Bank of America, City, et cetera, to now their Millions card. And that's why we built Not, a solution to easily switch your card and file information. I'll be honest, I did not know any of that background. So really fascinating and not necessarily the the journey that we hear every day. So I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing. And you did mention, so millions, I know we're going to cover not, but back to millions for a second, super impressive social media following. How do you do that? So my brother and myself and, and the team at millions, which ended up becoming not, we're just obsessive. So if we go back in the days, even to the GIFs.com days, we always would try to find a viral hack. So we bought the domain GIFYouTube.com. So that's just YouTube with GIF in front of it. Then we made a little script that would read the URL at the end of the YouTube to figure out what the YouTube video was. Then we told people to just put GIF in front of YouTube to GIF their videos. And that went super viral. Back in the Tumblr days, it had 100,000 plus reblogs. So we did a a lot of the same stuff for millions. We would hand message a thousand people on Twitter, literally typing it out by hand, asking them to follow the millions account. We would beg all social media websites to get at millions. So we have like a verifiable and reputable handle. We had approved emoji lists. So we were very, very particular around the emojis we would use, how we would have punctuation, a huge, huge branding class. Any customer support agent we hired had to go through this huge long test about branding and how they would respond to people. We hired folks just to respond to people on Twitter. Every day we would interact with them. So it felt like you were talking with Rory or Kieran or Pablo or Tate. 
uh, it felt like you were talking with a real person, these people on our teams, rather than just this millions account who was a crazy company. That's so fascinating. And okay, is it called FinTalk or did I just make that up? I don't know. But what's what's kind of the most fascinating thing about FinTech TikTok? Yeah, FinTalk. I like that. Yeah, they actually do call it FinTalk. I would say the most fascinating thing, at least that we did, is having a seamless integration with the Millions card and our TikToks. In the beginning, my brother and myself, we would just shoot a little video saying, hey, we're giving away $100 to someone who comments down below. Then we would print out every single name that commented, which is oftentimes thousands of comments. And we would put it in a bucket, a real live bucket. And we would live stream ourselves digging through the bucket and choosing out a name. So people loved that. But then once we launched the card, we would say, we're going to send the $100 to your millions card. And we would hold up the millions card. Every time you swipe the millions card, you could win money. So it was a very seamless brand integration. And it was, it's hard for other brands to replicate that because if they give away money, they're attracting the wrong clientele. Whereas if we give away money, because our whole purpose for millions was to have a, a lottery S card, it was a perfect brand alignment. Okay. So now I do actually want to shift back to not, and I know it is a progression, but I know that your vision is sort of to connect all of your accounts, but obviously you have to start somewhere in terms of a product. So how did you know which was the right product to start with? It was tough. I mean, we looked at our challenges at millions and we saw that people were not changing their card, not present details. So think progressive insurance or Verizon or their internet bills. And by and large, this is where people are spending a majority of their recurring sums. And it could be upwards of thousands of dollars a month. And we thought this was a huge opportunity. So we actually tried to convince Visa and MasterCard to update their tooling to allow us to utilize VAU and ABU, which are kind of their card updater tools for, for PAN and, and expirations, et cetera. And they said, guys, we're not going to do portfolio switches. This doesn't really make sense. We're going to piss off our, our biggest banks. And we, legally, we don't even own the PANs, so we're not going to do it. And we said, huh, we really want this, so we're going to build it ourselves. So we just started building it out ourselves. And the more we, we showed our friends who are in the space, the more they were like, hmm, if you guys launch this, just let me know because this seems really cool and I think we'd really benefit. And that's kind of like the, the origination story. Got it. And then I know on your website, it does mention account creator and password updater product that are coming soon. Can you give us a little bit of a preview of this? Sure. So if you think about not, it's really like Plaid, but for merchants. Plaid was linking to your bank account. Pinwheel and Atomic are for linking with your DD. And we're linking with merchants. So anything that you could log into a merchant, read information or write information, we're going to end up building for our clients. We actually just released the subscription canceller. We're partnering with this company called Yorba for that. They're going to be our first client. You just log in and cancels your subscriptions. It's like Truebill, but for B2B. And changing the passwords and account creation, it's going to be the exact same thing where you're able to change your passwords on the fly if you've been pwned or hacked or had your passwords compromised in any other way. And then, of course, for account creating, it's like the inverse of subscription canceling. You can create accounts on the fly. If you're NerdWallet or Credit Karma and you're making a lot of money off of affiliate marketing and you already have PII, do you really want to send people through a new unique flow where they have potential to drop off or do you want to just spin up an account for them? And that might help both sides of the folks there. Hopefully, I know it's sort of a B2B2C model, but hopefully I get to use one of those soon. And kind of off of that, given that it is B2B2C, was there a first time that you remember actually being able to interact 
with Knot as a user in the real world? And, and what was that like? So Knot is like pre-live in the real world. So there's not been a time where I've like logged into my cash app or something and been like, oh, let me, let me switch all my cards. Although who knows, that might happen in the next uh, year or so. But just when I saw it live internally and I was able to switch out my card details, it felt like it felt like calling an Uber for the first time. When we're making things like Dolly 2, where you just enter text and have this beautiful AI image, I was just laughing that I don't own my subscriptions. I can't just change my card on file. It's the most simple thing. It's, it's what I use every day. Why can't I switch banks in the snap of a finger? And just seeing it work and change my card on file information at Netflix and, and a bunch of others, I, I just couldn't help but laugh. You're probably more impatient than I am to, to get to test out that experience, but I hope I get to see it very soon in the, in the real world. And I probably won't know it's you guys because I'm imagining that there might be a little bit of white labeling going on, but would love to interact with the product. Or how does that, how does that go? In the most typical case, we're very similar to Plaid and not just an SDK. And we leave the not branding on it. So you'll see, you'll see the not logo. We're not going to be shoving it down anyone's throats, but you'll see the not logo. You might see the K here and there. So hopefully, hopefully you'll recognize it and, and know that it's us. Awesome. I will be on the lookout then. So you've shipped products or kind of are building products in a pretty fast manner. Was there anything in terms of both tools and then processes that's really helped you guys keep up a fast clip? Well, I think now is probably a good time to give a shout out to VGS. I mean, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. (laughs) Being able to get PCI compliant relatively quickly because of VGS and and working with you guys in the past is really nice. Being able to have the the peace of mind that the passwords and credentials that we're we're getting from users are tokenized and stored securely is is a great feather in the cap. And we do a lot of stuff with with Drata for PCI SOC 2 as well. But just having VGS as the subprocessor, kind of the fallback, the catch-all, it's really great there. So I would say that might be a... What about in terms of internal processes? Is there anything you can think of that's really kind of set you guys apart? Yeah, we hired a boatload of people. We're like 70 folks, including contractors. Wow. So a lot of bot building, I guess I should say user agent building. But we're really, at the end of the day, we're building bots to connect with these merchants. So moving really quickly. But when you hire that many folks, it's how do you know who's actually performing well? How do you know who's who's not building correctly? Who needs to continue to get refactored for their code? So we had to build out a lot of different internal tools, a lot of different tracking. We have a bunch of Slack channels where things get escalated. So if something ever breaks or has like a, a ping that takes a little bit too long, gets escalated to one of our senior engineers, there's a lot of interesting meeting cadences that we have going on at Knot. I think probably though one thing that I like the most is the most simple. It's just our weekly all hands where we all come together. We show exactly what we've been working on. And you can just ask questions and dig deeper. And maybe someone has a demo that they're so excited to show you. And you're like, all right, let's let's see it at the all hands. Let's dig deep and, and see if it works or not. So there's a there's so many different things, but it's it's very typical startup nature. Yeah. It's probably an amalgamation of of everything that you're doing, but Interesting to hear about the weekly all hands. I think that is a more frequent cadence than a lot of startups. So that's interesting to hear. In terms of the future of Knot, where do you see Knot in sort of the medium term, maybe next year or the year after? And then where do you see Knot long term? Next year, I think we have maybe 150 clients or so. I think they're primarily using the card switcher product and the subscription canceler from Knot. And then if you fast forward five years, 
five years is, is a pretty decent amount of time in the space. I think we might have upwards of 5,000 customers. I think we'll quickly go international, probably within the next year and a half or so. If you think about Knott's integrations, Netflix works in a very similar way in Brazil as it does in America. So we can go international relatively quickly. It's just integrating with the processors and, and the cores and, and banks at that point, which isn't, isn't too hard once you, you've done it a few times. So within five years, I think we could be integrated with 5,000 folks. I think we'll probably have released the change password, the create account, probably some new features too that our customers have been asking us about. I think we'll also go very deep in the horizontal integrations. So analytics on what subscriptions you're winning, where are you winning them from? Are you winning them from the Cash App, Bank of America? Who are you losing them to? So I think we'll have a lot of different horizontal products too for our customers. That'll be interesting to see. Shifting back to Rory, the person, I know you mentioned that you dropped out of Harvard, as did your brother. What's one thing that you did learn in college that you've applied now? And then maybe a little bit more about what gave you the conviction that it was time to drop out and pursue entrepreneurship full time. So I, I loved Harvard. I loved college. All my best friends were there. It was fantastic. There was no real reason for me to leave. I just loved school so much. And I've been a lifelong lover of school ever since I was little. I would rush home to do my homework. I was like a, like a, a crazy serious student when, when I was very young. What did I learn at college? I think just being able to connect with people and see the long term. Like maybe you meet someone in college and they're just you know, chilling or, or partying or, or relaxing a lot. And you fast forward 10 years and they've done brilliant things. And you know, it's not just taking someone at their relaxation state. You kind of have to fast forward and see the long-term relationships. But just, just building friendships, knowing people over time, seeing how people progress and maintaining those friendships. After dropping out, I would go back to school every month to visit. And I would sleep on my, my best friend's couches and, and chill with them. So being able to maintain those friendships a decade out, even after dropping out, I think uh, it's something I'm pretty happy about. So it was the summer after my sophomore year. And I told my brother, or asked my brother, do you want to go to San Francisco with me? We just launched this GIF company at Harvard. It was a GIF messenger app at the time. It was pretty popular. There was like a couple hundred kids using it. There was maybe 50,000 messages sent. So we were like, this, this warrants going to San Francisco. And at that point, going to San Francisco was like a pilgrimage. You felt as if you had to do it. 2014, that's where people were going. That's where the money was. Like, that was the thing. So we went and I, I told Kieran, who's my brother, very early on, you have to pretend that you've already dropped out in your mind. You have to believe you've dropped out or else we won't put our biggest effort into this and the summer will be a waste. So we went in there with the mindset of, hey, we're never going back. But deep in our hearts, we knew if things go wrong, we could always go back. It's the summertime. No harm, no foul. We went crazy. Our friends stopped out of school for a semester. They, they visited during the summer as well. And we launched on Product Hunt. Our good friend, Will Jameson, who was on the founding team of Yik Yak, launched us on Product Hunt. And then Ryan reposted it the, the next day. We launched on Hacker News. And we were both number one on Product Hunt and number one on Hacker News. So it was kind of lightning in a bottle. Then TechCrunch picked it up, a bunch of news article websites. We had millions of page views. And people counted page views as like the, the biggest KPI at the time. We had millions of page views at the end of the summer per month. And we were like, hmm. This is as good as we could have done, kind of, in that two-month period. Let's stay for another year. So we called up our friends and we said, hey, we're not coming back. We told our parents. And our dad had dropped out of school at some point. So he was like, oh, like father, like son, we, we knew you'd do it. But my mom, who, who's an immigrant from Guyana, 
really valued education. And our parents were so excited, you know, working class parents, we never really had a, had a bunch of money. They changed their license plate to 2N Harvard. Like that's how excited they were. And my mom was like, please go back after a year. And I'm very honest with my parents. I was like, we're never going back. There's no shot. It just doesn't make any sense right now. And my mom being you know, the great parent she is just immediately after five seconds said, you know what? I trust you. I support you. Let's do this. You guys are going to do great. So we had the support from our parents and our friends to some extent. And of course, the website was doing good at the time. So my brother and I just took a leap. Wow. That's such a fascinating story. And in terms of, did you guys raise money for that first startup? And sort of what's kind of the fundraising journey been like for you? Sure. So for GIFs at that time, we had raised 75K and we actually gave away 35% of the company for that 75K which was a ton. And then fast forward a year, we ended up raising, we were about to raise maybe like three and a half or something, a small, smallish seed, or I guess a regular seed at the time. And we went back to that first investor and we said, Hey, you had a pretty ridiculous deal here. We're about to raise you know, close to four mil. No one's going to take us seriously. If you have 35% in the cap table, this just doesn't make any sense. We look like fools at this point. And to his credit, he said, I don't want to, stand in your way of being successful. Don't let me stand in your way. Dilute me to whatever you have to. So we took a huge dilution, you know, close to 90% dilution for him. And uh, always uh, appreciated that. For GIFs raised maybe 4 mil or so. For this crypto play, we sold 80 mil worth of either. And then for millions, we've raised 5 mil so far. Awesome. And was it something that you raised virtually during COVID or were you able to actually meet face-to-face with the people you took money from? For millions slash not, no, it was all COVID. It was all Zoom. I actually, I was just at Money 2020 and we saw one of our investors in person for the first time, Alan Dew of PayPal, such a great guy. But no, I mean, now, now that you mentioned it, we haven't seen many of our investors in person, just, just the friends that we knew who came into the round. Well, I'm sure you will meet them in real life soon. But yeah, I think that process definitely is is something that was definitely shaken up by COVID in terms of prior to the pandemic being so in-person focused and entrepreneurs flying all over investors, the same thing. So yeah, interesting to see how that's changed. Oh yeah. And the last portion of the podcast, I want to ask you three quick rapid fire questions. So first, what's your favorite TV show? Survivor. Okay. Interesting. Do you still, is it still going? Still going to this day. I like Survivor because it brings people to their core. Very little food, little sleep. You have to vote people out of the island. And at the end of the day, the people that you voted out now vote for the winner. So there's this immense social politics there. And it's kind of like running a startup in a way in that you have to forecast, you have to predict, you have to get these coalitions ready ready to work together. So I'd say Survivor is probably my my favorite show. I I watch it with my girlfriend all the time. I was not expecting that. Okay. (laughs) Last, Last book that you read. The last book, I probably have it somewhere around here. Do you want like the last, last book or the last good book? Let's go with last good book. Okay. There's this, there's this one by this guy named Rory and it's called Alchemy. Are you the author? And no, no. I, <laughs> Was that a... I mean, that would be pretty good. Okay. Amazing. No, but it's, it's called Alchemy and it's about thinking differently and you know, essentially turning nothing into gold, which is what alchemy is. One of the interesting quotes that, that I heard in the book is somewhere, I think, in the London tube system or one of these railroads, they were thinking about how they can 
make trains faster. And one proposal was, let's spend $10 billion over 10 years to make a train that is twice as fast. And this guy, Rory, or, or one of his colleagues at his design firm was saying, well, what if we made the experience better? What if trains just came twice as fast? So you don't have to wait at the station for two hours. You just hop on a train right away. Or what if the period of waiting at the station was more fun? So there's all of these different interesting ways to solve a problem other than just the obvious one of making a train that's faster. Yeah, it's like flipping the axes. Okay, last question is, what's your favorite day of the year? Hmm, that's a great question. I might say my brother's birthday because I'm so thankful for my brother. Oh. I mean, he's he's my best friend. We've done everything together. He's really just amazing. There's only been a year that I've been apart from my brother, and that was the year he wasn't born. So on his birthday, I'm, I'm very thankful you know, to my parents and to him. Uh, we're just an extremely close family. So if it wasn't if it wasn't my brother's birthday, it'd be one of my other parents' birthdays or or a father or mother's day. Just something that you know, brings us together, and we could really appreciate each other. That's a very sweet answer. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Rory. If people want to find you, where can they find you? I would say notapi.com or notapis on Twitter or Rory O'Reilly on Twitter. But I would follow the not stuff. We're going to be posting some interesting videos, some interesting content, and who knows, maybe we could help your company grow your your town. Awesome. Well, I will certainly be doing that. But I really enjoyed our conversation. And as always to the listeners, if you want to drop us a line, you can drop us a line at pod at verygoodsecurity.com. And until next time. Industry leading companies from startups to the Fortune 500 use VGS to protect the collection, storage and exchange of sensitive payments data while maximizing its utility. With the VGS zero data approach to handling sensitive data, companies can achieve PCI DSS compliance and take control of their payment stack. To learn more, visit verygoodsecurity.com. You've been listening to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us to keep delivering the latest from the realms of payments and data security. Thanks for listening. Until next time.